Audrey Henson is the 28-year-old founder and CEO of nonprofit College to Congress. Much will impress you about Audrey, but it's her grit, determination, and thoughtful approach to helping others while at the same time addressing a critical need that will truly inspire you. I'm Laura Cox Kaplan, and this is She Said, She Said. Audrey, welcome to She Said, She Said. Thank you, Laura. I'm so happy to be here today. I'm so happy to have you. We have been talking about doing this interview now for several months. A couple of months. (laughs) You've been really busy getting College to Congress off the ground. Yeah. So let's start with that. What is Mm -hmm. College to Congress? And Mm -hmm. most importantly, how is it different from other internship type programs? Yeah. No, I love this question. I'll actually... I'll start with what we are and then go into how we're different because I do think it's important not to reinvent the wheel and to work with others. But the reason why I started College to Congress is because I did see a need. And I saw that no other internship organization in D.C. was addressing this specific need. Um, And so that really goes into our founding story. Whenever I was working on campaigns to help get women elected, I was feeling really grateful that I was where I was in my life. Um, And I don't know, maybe it was ignorance bliss about being 26 and feeling like I had accomplished probably more than I actually had. But I was really just feeling grateful. And it got me, you know, thinking and journaling, wondering how did I get here? How did I get to a point where I'm making a six-figure salary? How did I get to a point where, you know, I'm surviving in D.C. and I know folks? And as as I was journaling, I realized it all came back to an unpaid internship I had taken four years prior. Mm. You know, that internship was hard to get because I didn't know anyone in D.C. My family didn't have any connections. Um, But then just the finances of it were difficult. Like, I'll be completely honest. I was a low-income student. I was bartending at night, going to school during the day. So paying two rents, one in Tampa and one in D.C., seemed near impossible. Um, So I took out a student loan, and I uh, continued my bartending career here in D.C. And it really just got me thinking as I was journaling, how many other people out there are like me and didn't even get the chance to take out that loan or to take a risk on themselves? And they just said, no, I'm not going to do that. And so my focus from the beginning has always been, yes, on diversity and inclusion, but on diversity, not as what we see, but socioeconomic status, geography, diversity of thought, really making sure we're creating an applicant pool that reflects America and that reflects you know, this diverse country we live in. And so thus College to Congress was really born. That was a Friday night by Sunday. I called my boyfriend. I said, welcome, welcome home. He'd been on a business trip. Uh, I said, I'm creating a nationwide nonprofit. (laughs) (laughs) Had you been talking about this? No. um, Again, ignorant bliss. (laughs) I just just went for it. And he was like, okay, sure. Like, go for it. He was very supportive. Uh, I think he probably thought I was teasing, but I became obsessed with the idea and Um, I found myself, you know, going to happy hours and talking to people. And I wasn't talking about my current job, of which I also loved. But I was obsessed with this idea. 
Uh, and so that idea really is what is College to Congress. So we're a nonpartisan nonprofit that's working to make Congress more diverse and inclusive. Thus, our argument is they'll be more effective. Mm-hmm. So if they have people who um, understand the challenges that everyday Americans face, who better than them to solve those challenges? And so I think you know our unique value add is that we truly are the most inclusive organization. We're not we're not siloed by a gender or a political party. We're not siloed by you know any sort of religion or anything like that. And all of those groups are great. We work with a lot of them. But what we're trying to do is have a group that looks like America. And in our second year, our applicant pool matched to the percentage U.S. Census data. Wow. So we know we're on to something here, and we know that by truly opening the doors to everyone, we're going to get, we're going to be attractive to everyone. And so it's really important for us to make sure that this is a vehicle for all people of all thoughts and backgrounds and ideologies to really come to the table and get their start. I love, I love that, as yeah. you can well imagine. Um, but we are in a very politically polarized time. We are. How, how has the idea of a bipartisan organization <laughs> been embraced by both sides? Yeah, you're 100% right. It is, it is very divisive right now. This is something easy for members of Congress to get behind because we're specifically going into their districts and recruiting their constituents. Oh, wow. And so, you know, that's who they're serving. That's who they want to help. That's who they want to give jobs to. Um, and that's when it works the best is whenever you find, you know, a really eager college student who wants to serve, who knows the district, who grew up there, who knows sometimes a Congress member, you know, from town halls, but then you you let them serve each other. So with members, it's very well accepted. So that's great. because That's where I thought I would get a lot of my pushback. Um, unfortunately, with Uh, students is where we see some of the challenges. We had a group of students this year who were gung-ho about being a part of our program, but then they found out about our bipartisan allies program that we run. Mm -hmm. And so once a student is accepted into our program, we pay for everything. We bring them to Washington, D.C. We help them secure an internship on the Hill, but then we pair them with a mentor of the opposite party. Oh, wow. Right. And so this, and they, so they don't get to pick their mentor. They don't pick their mentor. Um, it's a little bit of like, you know, secret sauce making. And we do funny surveys and quizzes to make sure we're doing good pairing. So it's really important to us that we are aligning opposites, but that they have something in common that's not political. Say uh, the, inter- the intern and the mentor both love cooking. Or like for me, I love Beyonce. So <laughs> I would love to be paired with someone who shared my affinity for Beyonce. Uh, so we put them together and then we facilitate policy discussions. And so the whole idea that they have something non-political so they can kind of just tap out of the conversation when it gets heated and really still have that friendship. But this is where we've seen some students be reluctant because a lot of you know our media and the rhetoric around politics right now is if you don't agree with me, you're evil. Or if you don't agree with me, then you hate my kind of people. Or you're a bad person. Or you must be uneducated. Or you must be ignorant. And so they don't want to sit with these people who they naturally have these ideas through. And so we have to work with our students to go through that. It ends up resulting in beautiful relationships. And they end up realizing these people aren't evil. Like You're a regular person. You had a different background than I had. Or you were raised to believe this way. And sometimes, you know, the mentor changes. Sometimes the intern changes. And then sometimes they just better understand the other side, which is really the whole point. So 
short of that pushback <laughs> with the students, and I think part of it is just being young and, you know, working through your prejudice, we don't really get a lot of pushback. I, I think, you know, diversity and inclusion, youth empowerment, workforce development, these are things, that, you know, our nation cares about that we're starting to put attention and resources to. So it's kind of, we're a little lucky to have had this idea at this time that we've had it. So talk a bit about the training program. So in addition to the internship component of what you do, Mm -hmm. you're also offering trainings, obviously around diversity and and helping, presumably helping them navigate difficult conversations with people who have a different political point Mm -hmm. of view. What, how how are you doing that? What Mm -hmm. types of things are you doing? Yeah, this is where we pride ourselves because... Uh, We select our students, and then they have six months of training before they ever become an intern. And what I like to vow to chief of staff, a member of Congress, is I'm going to give you an intern who's staff ready on day one. And so they're getting everything from soft and hard skills. So uh, something as small as learning how to be professional over email, which is unfortunately a challenge in colleges because they don't teach you about that right now. Uh, to learning fine dining etiquette training, to learning how bills actually work, to learning the importance of constituent services, because that's really what Hill staffers do. They're there to serve people. They're not there to, you know, run around on TV and be the showboat. They're there to work and to be the, you know, uh, silent servant leader. Um, And so all of our training is really with that in mind. How do we make you the best professional political Hill staffer that we can make you? Uh, not all of our interns end up staying on Capitol Hill. Some of them go into the private sector. Some of them go into nonprofits or campaigns. But these skills are transferable, and they extend beyond our internship. So even after you know they do the six months of training, they do training every week while they're here. We also have an alumna program that does ongoing training. And I shared with you earlier that I'm in the process of buying a house. Mm-hmm. And so everything we do at College to Congress has really been things I wish I had mm-hmm. when I was their age. And I've been talking with my staff about what happens, you know, whenever our interns and our alum are ready to go through the home buying purchase. And how are we going to support them through that? Because in addition to helping them start public service careers, we're also helping them break the cycle of poverty in their families. Mm-hmm. And so it's it's a lot of that soft skill training, everything from financial literacy to just learning, you know, how do I cut my parents off if I'm the sole breadwinner and I'm 22? It's a lot of really difficult challenges that they face that our team is uniquely propositioned to help them because we've all lived through it too. How are the interns finding you or how are you finding them? You mentioned going into congressional districts, but how do you ultimately identify them or have particular students flagged for you? Yeah, so um, we're actually in our recruitment season right now. So our applications close on November 30th and the majority of our students find us on social media. We're a young organization. I'm 28, all my team is, you know, under 28. Uh, So we've really been able to utilize Instagram and Facebook and Twitter to reach out to these um, students. We also specifically go out and partner with uh, uh, schools within a district. So I'll give, um, I'm from St. Pete, Florida. Congressman Charlie Chris is one of our representatives. So we'll go to three schools in that district and say, hey, help us identify some students who would be perfect for this program. But overwhelmingly, it's really students finding us. It's students who are politically active, who are really passionate, who want to take that passion and turn it into action. And they see us as a vehicle to get to do that. How long did it take you from having, you know, you were sitting on your back porch, yeah. you were writing in your journal, which we're going to talk about in a minute, because um, I'm fascinated by the idea of sort of the role that journaling plays. Yeah. 
But how long did it take you from having the idea mm-hmm. to actually being able to execute on it? Yeah. Because um, it seems like this happened really fast. It does maybe to other people. <laughs> it doesn't feel From like that to me. It seems like it was really fast. So that was in April. And um, I started, you know, coming up with my, I had my name by June. That's when I incorporated. April of? April of 2016. 2016. And um, I incorporated in June. I applied for my 501c3 status. We got it in 21 days. It was like insanely quick. But then I I still hadn't committed full time. So I was running a congressional campaign at the time and um, I had helped get two women elected and I really wanted to get like my third woman elected before I left politics, kind of looking for that hat trick, so to speak. Um, And so it it was really a side hustle. I mean, it, it truly like it moved slowly. I did it at nights and on weekends when I could. Of course, it consumed my thoughts. And every time I talked to someone, it's all I wanted to talk about. I was probably really annoying to be friends with back then. <laughs> and then after, you know, my candidate won in November and I had a chance to, you know, come work for her on the Hill or to pursue this project. And I wanted to see what would happen, and it was really risky, but I was also at a point in life where it's like, I don't have kids, I'm not married, I can take this risk, and if I fail, the worst thing that's going to happen is I told someone like, hey, I took a bet on myself and I failed. That's not too bad. That's a cool story to get to tell. So it wasn't until November 2016 did I start you know, working on it full time. Um, and then it was last year, so November 2017, when I brought on our first hire. Now we're a team of six, so I guess that part is accelerated. Yeah. So it took about a year and a half to like build that infrastructure for me to really understand what is this business like, what's our value add, who who are our customers going to be, you know, who are our partners going to be in this, how is the hill going to receive this, and once you have all that infrastructure set and in place, now it's just add resources, add people, add money, add time. Um, so from there, yes, it, is, it has skyrocketed. It's been exciting. And um, we're going through a bit of a pivot right now. And I think we're going to scale even more so afterwards. But, you know, those, that first year and a half, it didn't feel fast. I mean, <laughs> every day was grueling. And I had, you know, mentors on my board who I could call. Um, but it was still lonely, even though I'm sure everyone around me would have been more than happy to help me through anything. I, it's kind of like in my nature to, like, hunker down and just figure it out. So it was a, like long lonely time yeah yeah how about raising money so you've had to raise raise money in order to to get college to congress off the ground Mm -hmm. um you're pretty young yeah right which is awesome (laughs) i want to know how you have raised the money Mm -hmm. and then i also want you to talk about how you made sure that people took you seriously, mm. took your idea seriously and took you seriously mm-hmm. as well. Because that can be a challenge, I for think, sure. for young women in particular. For sure. Yeah, it absolutely is. Or maybe I should ask, was it a challenge? <laughs> I think for sure. I think it definitely was at first. Um, one, because I was so passionate. And so I think, you know, I would come in to a funding meeting and I had never done fundraising before too. So I was navigating a lot of uncharted waters. I was, you know, binge watching Shark Tank (laughs) and Googling every word I didn't know and looking up how to write a business plan at the same time, trying to talk to all my friends who did political fundraising and learn how does that work? How do I go about doing this? Um, And, you know, part of it is like fake it till you make it. But the the other challenge I had, and I think people at the beginning didn't take me seriously because I was almost too passionate and excited. 
And I would kind of just like spew out way too many ideas. Like I want to do this and I want to do that, but da 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 da. And it, I wasn't as organized about it as I am now. But that was the phase of the business where we were in, where everything was an idea. Nothing was concrete yet. So, who helped you fine tune that? How did you How did you realize that that was something that was potentially getting your excitement was potentially getting in the way of yeah. your message being clearly articulated? I think just other funders like whenever people would say no I would ask them why I would almost do exit interviews like why aren't you my donor (laughs) um and they'd say you know I believe in you you seem enthusiastic you have a good idea I know you gave me a business plan thanks but I need to see your five-year projection it's like oh yikes okay well I don't have that let me get that and I think it just naturally starts happening right when you start thinking more strategically about your business, you start talking about it differently. It starts becoming so real to you. You start realizing, oh, if this funder says no, what does that mean for us down the road? And it just, it starts to change how you operate and how you talk and how you act. Um, And I think I just started taking myself seriously. I started realizing like, this isn't a side hustle anymore. This is my full-time job, even before I was getting paid, (laughs) which was hard. It's hard to have that confidence of, Hi, I'm a CEO. I don't get paid. In fact, I've invested my own money in this. I think once I started getting paid, once my board really backed up my plan, once I saw the excitement on Capitol Hill and with our students, and I realized this is something other people are willing to invest in, that's when you just kind of start building on the confidence. You start building on your professionalism, how to take you seriously. Uh, I think it's also important not to take yourself too seriously. I mean, I'm still myself. You know, I'm I am young and. Uh, I am energetic, and I do love College to Congress, and even right now, I think there's a thousand things I could tell you about my ideas. Um, But it's just really being true to yourself and harnessing that and letting your best quality shine. Yeah. Does the funding come primarily from individuals or from corporate Mm -hmm. donors Mm -hmm. or from grants? Or Mm -hmm. where's sort of your primary fundraising? Yeah. So we have three buckets of funding. So we have foundations, which make up a large percentage of our budget. We have corporate sponsors. And then we have individuals of which the median gift is about 50 bucks. So our individuals are typically folks who either interned on the Hill or couldn't ever intern on the Hill because they weren't able to do this. Um, or quite frankly, people who usually give political money, who are unhappy with the politicians they're seeing, and they believe in investing in the staff who are going to stay there after Election Day and making sure that those are the right people that are there. When it comes to corporate sponsors and the folks we work with there, those are you know companies like Visa, Toyota, Salesforce, companies that are really committed to diversity and inclusion within their own company who also want to see that reflected in the government that's representing them. And with foundations, these are some of our most fun people to work with because we have 10 and 20 year plans with them. We really do believe that our country is going to be majority minority in less than 10 years. How do we make sure that we have a staff that reflects that? And how do we make sure that the bills that are coming out of Congress serve those needs? So these are, you know, my more strategic partners who I can come to them and I can be really honest with my foundation partners about our challenges and what we're going through and how can they weigh in. And I think, too, when you asked me about fundraising and how was I able to get on board, it was early foundations like the Hewlett Foundation and Democracy Fund who really strengthened me, who said, we believe in you. We need to see your five-year plan. Mm-hmm. We believe in you. You need to pay yourself or no one's going to take you seriously. 
We believe in you. You need a team. You can't do everything. You can't make the social media graphics and empty the trash and go to funding meetings and talk to the press. So I think it's just bringing in those partners and being willing to mold and be criticized and to grow from it. That's been helpful. What you're doing can be really scary, right? Oh, yeah, it absolutely is. (laughs) So how do you deal with that? Yeah. How do you keep that in check and not Mm -hmm. let the fear overwhelm you from actually moving forward? Yeah. I mean, I haven't honestly figured that out wholly, right? I go through times where, um, like this pivot right now, it's it can be scary because it's like, what are we going to be when we grow up? <laughs> we don't know yet. So that can be scary. But I think as long as you stay mission focused, and we always bring it back to who are we serving? We're serving these students and we're serving Capitol Hill offices. It's easy to kind of let those things drop because you realize there's something greater and the anxiety is just going to get in the way. You mentioned getting great feedback from the foundations that you were reaching out to Mm -hmm. for money. Feedback is something that we talk a lot about on the podcast. It can be especially difficult for women, and I think especially difficult when you're young, to hear feedback, which is constructive, typically, and not over-internalize it mm-hmm. or sort of reverse the 90% of what people tell you, which is positive and focus just on the 10%, which right. is sort of negative, negative. slash constructive, yeah. right? So how it sounds like you're kind of wired to be able to take feedback yeah. in a way that you internalize it in a constructive way as yeah. opposed to kind of thinking about, oh my gosh, that 10 per- they didn't love me 100%. Well, <laughs> great. Bring them, bring how, where does that come from? Who taught you how to do that? Or how do you, how do you, how did you learn how to take feedback? Yeah. Well, who taught me? I have a critical mother. <laughs> I have a loving yet critical mother. So I think my whole life, you know, my family's really competitive and we all played sports. And I mean, we're competitive about anything. And you're though. one like, of three? I'm one of three. I have two younger brothers. Like even karaoke is, you can, my, my family's always like, if you're not winning, what are you doing? And so I think who taught me how to do it is probably, you know, my family. And the fact that we all kind of, you know, we're one-uppers and we want to like be the best and we want to win. Um, and so you're not, you're not going to win if you're in second place, you don't know what you're doing wrong to get into first. So I think that's probably where I learned it. It's also a challenge that I still face right now in my role, though, because I'm very early on in my career and I don't have a boss. Hmm. So I have to seek out feedback or else I'm not going to get it. And uh, I was even meeting with a board member yesterday and he said, you know, you're always trying to get us to criticize you, but you're doing a great job. And I was like, thanks for being my cheerleader. Like, if you guys don't help strengthen me, no one else will. Right. Right. And so... I have to be really proactive of going to mentors, going, I you know recently hired an executive coach, going to my coach and just saying, let's be honest, like, here's what I think my weaknesses are. What are my blind spots that I'm not even realizing yet? Like, mm-hmm. how do we tackle this together? So, I mean, I, I like feedback because I think it propels you to greatness. Mm-hmm. Um, I do know some folks will just struggle on the negative. You can't, I mean, throw on a Beyonce song, like strut around your house, like build that confidence up. Because you're right, it's usually only 10%, and that is what people focus on. But just, I like to just keep it in the back of my mind. When I notice I did something or said something I didn't want to say, I say, ooh, yikes, I could have phrased that differently. Mm-hmm. But I don't stay up at night worrying about it, feeling like I offended someone. It's like, they're not doing that either, so I don't need to sit around worrying about it. And next time I see them, I can apologize, or maybe they don't even know about it. So I think it's just, you know, really having an awareness of, like, who you are 
and then where you want to go. And then that's how you can use feedback in a productive way. Let's talk about best practices from your standpoint related to building those strong mentor-mentee relationships Mm -hmm. and how you solidify mentorship into a relationship. Sure. Um, I mean, I'm huge on mentors. Every everything I've been able to do in my life has been because someone smarter than me has pushed me to that. I mean, even politics. I thought the end all be all was get on Capitol Hill, and then I realized, oh yikes, there's not enough women here. How do we help women get there? And a mentor taught me about campaigns and how I could go help get women elected. And so, I'm a big believer. And yes, it should be a relationship. It shouldn't just be someone preaching down to you or even the mentee saying, give me, give me. Um, It has to be mutual and you guys have to both get a lot out of it. And uh, I'm mentored by a ton of women and men who I really admire and I use them for very specific things. I wouldn't say any of my mentors are general mentors. I have mentors who I go to whenever I want to talk about just me personally and not the business or something specific about the business like communications or finance within the business. Um, but then I, you know, I mentor young women too. And so I, it's a good reminder for me to, you know, keep giving back and to keep investing in others. Did you seek your mentors consciously? Did you think, okay, I need help with X. Who would be great to help Absolutely. me with X? And then you went to that person and said, hey, yeah. were they people that you knew already? Um, typically not. This might be embarrassing, but I have like a wish list of mentors. Great. Your name has been on it for a long time. <laughs> You're so nice. Um, I'm not kidding. <laughs> You're already it's on the of, podcast. It's kind of my, my celebrity mentor wish list. So I, I look sweet. at people who have accomplished a lot in their jobs and in their industries. And then that's who I try, you know, I purposely will seek out. And I'll be completely honest with them too. I'll say, hey, can I take you to coffee? I'm I'm struggling with this challenge. I'd like to get your take on it. And then depending on how our first, you know, meeting goes, if I think, you know, it's kind of like dating. Like, are we hitting it off? Right. Are we enjoying each other? Maybe I'll ask them to do it again. And I, I never really say, do you want to be my mentor? I'm not like, do you want to be my boyfriend? Uh, it's not quite <laughs> that formal, but it's we naturally start building this relationship where we're working through challenges together. And then I try to be helpful, of course, where I can be helpful. But yeah, I mean, I definitely have a wish list. Uh, It's how I also have ended up recruiting a lot of my board members. A lot of my board members are people I didn't know prior to starting College to Congress. Mm -hmm. But it's people I saw either in the media or heard around the Hill had an affinity for this issue and for the problem that we're tackling. Tell me a bit about the partnership that you have with Salesforce. That sounds really interesting. Mm Um, so, you know, we just talked about actively going out and seeking mentors. We do the exact same with our funding partners. Uh, so it's really important for us as a young startup organization to align ourselves um, with people who we admire, much like a mentor. And, um, you know, who you take your money from does matter. And so that's why it's so important for us to make sure that we're working with partners who within their own companies are doing the same and they don't use philanthropy to cover up what they're doing that they're not proud of. Uh, and that's something we really love about Salesforce is their CEO, um, you know, he is 100% committed to female equal pay and to reevaluating maternity and paternity leave and to, you know, really making sure that he's creating a company where American families can thrive and where people's voices are heard. 
And so it's very much what we're doing for Congress. We're making sure that there's an equal playing field. We're making sure that voices are heard and we're making sure our interns can thrive and survive on the Hill. Something else that's really fun about what we're doing with Salesforce is it's not just, you know, that they're giving us funding and we say, thank you, you know, come to our gala, we'll see you next year. But we've actually included them in our strategy. So we recently rolled out a um, corporate leadership council of which a member from Salesforce sits on and they weigh in on, you know, where is this company going? Where is our organization going? Uh, How do we make it better? Bringing in, you know, that startup tech mentality, that youthful, like high energy feel to what we're doing to make sure that we're not getting comfortable and seeking in because we've had some success early on that we really are pushing the limits. And so they've been wonderful to us and we've loved working with them. Hopefully you get to work with them for years to come. So how do you, you've, you've got a board, you've got <laughs> mentors, you're very focused on getting feedback, but how do you know what you don't know? <laughs> I guess you don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's where you ask about the blind spots. Mm -hmm. What am I missing that I don't even know I'm missing? Uh, And that's why I finally decided to hire an executive coach because now this is someone that beyond their feelings and beyond wanting to give back, now this is someone whose full job it is to make sure I am, you know, reviewing those blind spots and I'm aware of that. Um, So we're early on in our relationship. Her name's Kathleen. She's amazing. I love her. I want to be her when I grow up. Um... (laughs) But I really am going to lean on Kathleen to help me understand what I don't know. And, you know, it's a little bit like a gut check, too, because she's there to tell me when I'm taking too much on or when I'm worrying about something that maybe obsessing about perfecting a certain piece of the business where she's like, you're, you're really not there. Like, I know you're trying to work on this, but you shouldn't be working on this yet. I'm using my coach to do that. I think you can use a lot of different people in your lives to do that. Some people use their boyfriends or husbands. Some people use your best friends. You just, you have to be okay with not getting your feelings hurt if you're going to ask for feedback like that. It can be hard, though, I think. It can be hard. People who are close to you to really. That's why it's nice to pay someone. (laughs) It's hard for them to be objective. Right. Right. Or uh, even if they do have feedback, it's hard for them to feel comfortable Sometimes. Right, because they don't want to hurt your feelings. Yeah. yeah, and I mean, I think at a lot of, you know, the bigger companies like Deloitte right now, they have mentorship programs that are essentially set up like an executive coach where you can be mentored from people from other departments. So, you know, it's cost effective for, you know, you as the mentee, but then it's also not someone you're having to see every day. And so they can be more objective. So I think there's a lot of different avenues that people could go about doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, this is just something I feel like is working for me. And so I'm excited to get to do it. You talked about journaling a moment ago. Um, what role does that play for yeah. you? How long have you been doing that? Why I'm that obsessed with journaling. Um, and I think it's because I'm such a big talker that I'll kind of talk for no reason. <laughs> And so journaling forces me to really just stop and think about what important is going on in my life. And I don't journal every day. Sometimes I go months without doing it. One time I went a whole year without doing it. In fact, when I wrote about College to Congress, I think the previous entry was only nine or ten months, you know, in between. Um, And then sometimes, you know, if I'm going through challenges, if I feel like, you know, I'm kind of being attacked on all fronts, so to speak, I might journal a lot more. 
I think it's just a way that I can express vulnerability without worrying about being judged. So it's really important for me, like I really pride myself on my grit and, you know, my ability to push forward and to be strong. And journaling is a place where I found no one's ever going to read it except me, unless I choose for someone to read it, which I won't. (laughs) Uh, So I can just, I can really put my feelings out there and I don't have to be embarrassed if I don't feel that same way the next day or a year from now. So it's just, it's it's kind of like a thing of prayer for me too, like Mm -hmm. I kind of imagine as a moment where like just me and God and like I can just kind of get it all out. Um, And I love looking back on it. And I love seeing like, wow, I thought that was the worst thing I'd ever been through. And, you know, now I'm two years separated from it. It's not too bad. Yeah. Or like, oh, that really made me stronger. Like sometimes, you know, I just journal and I'm happy. And it's like, that's cool. (laughs) I'm in a happy place. And just being proud of yourself and like really just being able to put it all out there. It's healthy. You mentioned God. Yeah. Does faith play a role for you? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I mean, I know you talk about confidence a lot. And I was joking with my team. I was like, I know I'm going to get this question. What do I do? But yeah, I've I've, I've been a Christian my entire life. And, uh, you know, teenage angst, there were like times where I kind of wavered through it and didn't know, you know, I had to go find answers for myself. But I always come back to it. And it's a place where I get a ton of strength from. And it's something that for me personally, I, I really do feel like that's the passion of my body. And that's that's why I'm willing to do a nonprofit and help people. I think it's God because I would much rather be, you know, working in the private sector and making a ton of money. <laughs> um, but, you know, like because I'm a Christian, I do believe in like that sacrifice and about helping others. Uh, sometimes I have to like remind myself of it. But, yeah, I... I'm very devoted to my faith, and I think it's incredibly helpful um, being a leader too, you know. Even even if you're not a Christian, I think the Bible teaches you a lot about leadership and servitude, and you play all these roles with different relationships in your life all at the same time. And so I found that to be a pretty good guideline for how to manage those relationships. How do you, as an extension of what you just said, yeah. how do you define success for yourself. A lot of people mm. would be inclined to define success along monetary terms, potentially. Mm-hmm. How do you how do you define success? Mm-hmm. Well, I have pretty strict short and long-term goals. So I do have like benchmarks I look for and I break it down like every year like my spiritual success. So these are benchmarks not for the company but for you. For me personally. Wow. Yeah, so I've been uh, and I mean I do it around New Year's resolutions. I don't call them resolutions cuz they're they're goals that I create maps to move forward and actually hit and I assess myself every quarter which can be tough it can be tough like over the summer we had a really busy summer I was like I'm not hitting any of my benchmarks when did you start doing this um I started doing it when I was a freshman in college and it started because I wanted to retire at 50 and so it started with just financial goals like if I start contributing if I open an IRA and contribute now when can I retire And it naturally just bled into everything. Then it turned into I'm adding academics, I'm adding spiritual, I'm adding my relationship goals, my family goals. That's one way that I define success is I know where I'm trying to go and if I get there or not. I don't know sometimes what success looks like because the point I am in my entrepreneurship is my company is so much of who I am. And so it's hard for me to imagine, you know, maybe five, 10 years down the road, not doing this, what would I do? Mm -hmm. 
And that's actually something I'm working on right now. So hopefully I can report back to you on (laughs) what that success measure looks like. I know for some people it's balance, but I think when you're early in your career, you just, you don't get the luxury of balance. You, you have to grind it out and you have to prove yourself. So, yeah, I mean, I, I wish I had a better answer, but I'm really still, I'm figuring it out myself. Mm -hmm. That's a great answer. (laughs) So I'm, I am, uh, I am amazed by what you said about your quarter goals and starting this personal evaluation practice very early on in college. Well, it wasn't actually until this year that I started doing it publicly. Mm-hmm. So this Meaning year... talking about the fact that you're doing it? Talking about it and even just showing it. Like this year I posted it on my Instagram, like here are my 2018 goals, which was really hard because like some of them, like yesterday I found out I didn't get one of them. One of my goals was I wanted to be on Forbes 30 under 30 and I was super honored to be nominated and I made it, you know, pretty far in the process. But yesterday I found out when the general public found out that I didn't get it. It wasn't until this year that I started being more open about it. And I wanted to, you know, publicly come out with my goals, not to say, oh, look at me, I'm achieving these things. I wanted that added layer of accountability because last year I didn't have that. And I saw how my company took over my entire life and I didn't hit any of my personal goals. So I thought, you know, by putting it out there, even if no one mentions it, I know that it's out there and that people could look at it. Mm -hmm. That was enough for me to move forward. How do you recover from failure? Mm. So I experience a lot of failure because... And maybe it's not failure. We yeah. could call it setback. Yeah, you I know. know. It's fine. I'm a big believer in failure and failing fast. And um, we experience a ton of failure because we, you know, shoot for the moon. And we apply to stuff that we're probably not qualified for. And we go after funders that we have no business talking to, but... We don't really care because we're just steaming through. Um, But that means we hear a lot more no's than normal. Uh, And I think that's okay because, again, going back to those early days of College to Congress, when you get that no, it's it's really just going back to them at a time when you're ready and learning why. And that's how you can come back and say, not yet. It's not a no. It's a not yet. And how do I get to yes? Like, I'm always trying to figure out, like, how do I get to yes? And so if you view failure as not yet – it's just not the time for this, and you can come back, then I think it's a lot easier to deal with. Uh, So like there was an incubator this year that I tried to get into, and I didn't get into it, and it was upsetting for a day. And then the strategy was, okay, how how do we apply again? How do we try to get into this again? And there are things in life too that whenever it's time to revisit it, you might not even want it anymore, Mm -hmm. and you might not need it. And that's a pretty great feeling too. And I think that's another thing, it's like, Every time you experience failure, it just becomes easier and easier. And I think, you know, at this point, you start becoming desensitized to failure, which is great. I think it's a great place to be Mm -hmm. because then you're not fearful. Mm -hmm. Then you're just ready to hit the ground and go. You've talked a bit about your mom Mm -hmm. and saying that she's really supportive, but but she's tough. Mm -hmm. What what do you think is different about her? What do you think she did differently that was particularly useful to you as you've embarked on this journey? Yeah. Well, my mom's a fighter. My parents got divorced when I was five years old, and she had a five, a three, and a one-year-old. Yeah. And I watched her. And how old were you at the time? I was five. I'm the oldest. And so I watched her, you know, from a very early age, get creative and get creative with ways to make money, get creative with 
ways to thrive, get creative with making sure that we never felt like we were missing anything. And it's funny, you know, I was actually thinking about this the other day. I've really unintentionally followed in our footsteps. So uh, when we still lived in Texas, my mom created a company called New Directions where she helped people with disabilities go get jobs. And I think unintentionally, I've now started this nonprofit where I'm helping low-income people with other disadvantages go get jobs on Capitol Hill. I mean, it's, it's such a direct correlation. And it's funny because everything I've tried to achieve, you know, everyone wants to be better than their parents, leave a better legacy. And then I ended up practically becoming her <laughs> and doing what she did. But I just seeing how resilient she is and how much she's helped our family get through setbacks that we've experienced, it's, it's inspiring. So for other entrepreneurs out there, yeah. and especially those who are young, under 30, yeah. what's your best advice for them? Mm-hmm. Uh, I'd say own your story. I spent a lot of my life running away from who I am and trying to be a chameleon and fit into worlds where I thought, you know, they're smarter, they have more money, they're... Um, you know, they are the elites I want to be with them. And what I've learned is by being honest about my background and where I come from, I'm accepted into those circles and they accept me for who I am. So I think really owning who you are and using it to do something good with it. Where does, as you think about College to Congress and you Mm -hmm. think about your journey, where does personal meaning come from for you Mm -hmm. as it relates to this? Uh, I think it's multi-layered. So um, the most direct, you know, fulfillment that I get is within our students and really seeing myself in each and every one of them and being able to help them navigate family challenges while also trying to make the best in themselves here in a really hard city, in the most powerful city in the world, and really trying to make a name for themselves. But then there's that second layer, and this is like what really fuels my fire, is knowing that the work that we're doing is having rippling effects all over not only our country, but the world. I mean, Congress declares if we go to war or not, right? And so it's really inspiring and powerful to know, like, I am helping build this pipeline of young leaders who are going to make these decisions on behalf of our country and make sure that American people are heard, that they see themselves reflected in this institution that is typically pretty unpopular. And so we definitely have our work cut out for us, but it's it's really inspiring for me to get to say, hey, I'm leaving my mark on this country and I'm leaving my mark on Congress. And through these people, we're building a better, more representative government. So we ask every person who comes on the podcast for a single piece of advice or life hack or mantra. You've already given me the best advice for a young entrepreneur. Is there something else that you would say that really personally resonates with you that's been kind of an important guiding philosophy? Yeah. I'd say slow down in the mornings. I used to get up out of bed and already feel behind and rush through my day. And this year I've really been focused on whether it's five minutes, 10, sometimes I get lucky I have an hour, just investing back into myself. And so sometimes that's journaling, going to the gym, hanging out with my dog, or just laying in bed and doing nothing. You'll realize even though you're too busy to stop, you actually do have that time. And if you can reinvest in yourself, you can be a better, a better version of you. Audrey. 
Thank you. This was such a pleasure. I really loved the conversation. Likewise. Likewise. Thank you, Laura. Thank you. To learn more about Audrey, you can go to our website at www.shesaidshesaidpodcast.com. There, I will include some great show notes from today's visit, along with some terrific photographs. You can also follow us on Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please consider leaving a review. We would love to hear from you. As always, thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.